From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Karen Deeroff, aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. With a healthy variety of native fish in the aquarium at the museum, Karen is here to talk about them and their senses. How well does a fish hear, even if we can't see their ears? Do they have a keen sense of smell? Or are people just wasting their money on hissing, flavored, wiggling fishing bait? We'll talk about these and other questions today. So join the conversation with your phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today, also from the Museum of Natural Science, Karen Deeroff, an aquarium biologist there. With a healthy variety of native fish in the aquarium at the museum, Karen is here to talk about them and their senses. How well does a fish hear, even if we can't see their ears? And do they have a keen sense of smell? Or are people wasting their money on the hissing, flavored, wiggling fishing bait? We'll talk about those things today and answer any other questions that you have. Uh, to join the conversation with a phone call, give us a dial-up, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send us an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And uh, just a reminder, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope that you're both doing well this morning. Yes, good, good morning. morning. I'm wondering what the, you know, every time I say that, I think to myself, dial is not really, no one, there aren't any <laughs> dials left on phones. So I guess punch up or tap or, you know, uh, I wonder what the modern day equivalent it is. And, you know, again, uh, the younger generation the thinking dialing a phone, yeah, it's just, you know, I, yeah. I, I watch a lot of old TV shows and it's it's interesting uh, how long it used to take to dial a phone to number. Dial. One to now, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times if yes. you've got it in, in your phone memory, it's one button and, and you're ready to yeah. go there. So. And now we all say we push buttons, which is confusing too, I guess. We don't really have right, any. You're right. Very we, seldom we do we have pushing buttons virtual anymore. Buttons. Yes, yes. <laughs> Anyway, join us with a phone call today if you'd like to, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So we've been off for the past couple of weeks. Uh, Libby, hope you enjoyed your time off. Oh, I did, definitely, but I'm glad to be back. Yeah. Um, let's see. And I did bring this cool weather from Oregon. Okay, Thank very you. good. Yes, yeah, that yes. was, uh, I, I really did enjoy that. Because earlier uh, in the week, I think it was Monday, it just was awfully, awfully humid. I couldn't believe how sticky and hot it was. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully fall is on the way here because I think after a long, hot and humid summer, all of us here in the, in the southeast enjoy the, the cooler temperatures in the fall. So uh, we're welcome back, aquarium biologist uh, Karen Deeroff. Karen, always good to hear from you or be with you on Glad Creature Comforts. Uh, remind folks, uh, kind of give us a general idea of what are some of the things that you do as an aquarium biologist at the museum. Oh, goodness. Um, okay. Well, uh, we go out and collect the fish that uh, go in the aquariums. Uh, we do that various methods. We uh, Sometimes we just go out fishing, hook and line. That doesn't happen often. Uh, 
We'll use uh, special equipment called electrofishing gear to uh, shock the fish. It stuns them temporarily, and then they wake up in just a few minutes perfectly fine. Or we'll use nets, various kinds of nets. Uh, we'll use small dip nets. We'll use seines. And then we bring them back to the museum. Uh, we put them through a quarantine where we make sure they're free of diseases and parasites. And after several weeks, we'll put them on exhibit. We feed the fish. We clean the windows on the inside and the out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we do windows. Um, and, you know, then everything from filter maintenance, uh, making sure our water quality is good, and all the way down to mopping the floors. <laughs> And, and they're also performers to a large extent. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we get in the that. aquariums yeah. and, and, and do, you know, public fish feedings for the, you know, for the public to watch. Um, that's always exciting because it's interesting seeing the fish interact with humans. And uh, anyone who has been to the museum, I'm sure, has been to the, I mean, the aquariums are really great there. Um, and there's a really a wide variety. What what I always like when I go there is that the fact that you have sort of the different ecosystems that we would find here in Mississippi represented in, in different tanks. Yeah, exactly. We try, we've tried when we set everything up to have each aquarium represent a specific habitat in Mississippi, almost to the point where you can point to it on a map and say, this is supposed to look like right here. Uh, so we have everything from saltwater fish that would be in the Mississippi Sound, the uh, saltwater marshes, uh, freshwater streams, small streams that are blackwater streams, uh, have a unique water chemistry, Lois Hills uh, or Lurs Hills, depending on how you say it, uh, water chemistry, even down to little microhabitats within streams where the water's moving really fast called a riffle. The fish that live in those habitats, microhabitats, are more uh, have special adaptations to living there. We have uh, fish that represent a reservoir, fish that represent a large river, uh, fish that represent the backwaters of a swamp. So, yeah, we have we we tried to cover everything. <laughs> and it's always fun to me when you visit to, uh, you know, to look for the fish and then to see, you know, cause you've got the type of fish that are in each tank, uh, you know, signage and information posts, and it's always fun to try to identify uh, what fish you're actually seeing. Although the other thing I would say is I, I would imagine in these natural habitats sometimes. The fish don't get along. Do you con- are you concerned sometimes about putting fish A with fish B? Yes, <laughs> we don't like to talk about that a whole lot, but it does happen. Uh, but we work really hard to keep our fish very well fed, so that the the larger predator fish try. We try to encourage them not to eat the smaller fish. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are some fish that that do tend to have some scars, maybe from the bigger gar things like that. But. Uh, we we do work very hard at trying to maintain a, a happy balance there between having the predator and the prey fish all in the same aquarium. <laughs> um, so we are on Creature Comforts. We're going to be visiting with Karen throughout the hour. We're going to be talking about fish. And also, Karen, I would imagine uh, if folks have a home aquarium, you might be able to offer a little bit of assistance. Sure. Uh, phone lines are open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So we mentioned in the in the top of the show that we'll talk a little bit about uh, the senses of fish. Uh, the first one we'll talk about is hearing, and I guess you can't really see ears on fish. So uh, how, what, how do they hear, and what do they hear? Uh, yeah, fish actually can hear. Um, they and they do have an organ that helps them sense sound. It's called the lateral line, and it runs down the side of the fish from just behind the gills, almost all the way to the tail. Uh, it's hard to see though, and Fish will have markings, skin, like coloration markings. Don't confuse those for the lateral line. But the lateral line is a a series of, on a scaled fish, like a bass, little teeny tiny holes in the scales 
um, that form an, an arched line from the head to the tail, and then behind those are receptors that can sense vibrations. Uh, you can actually see it on a catfish maybe a little easier because they don't have any scales and they're you know pretty uniformly marked. You can see this little tiny, very faint line from the head to the tail, the lateral line, um, and that's the organ that senses vibrations. And so fishermen actually uh, have learned to capitalize on that by making baits, um, artificial lures, that vibrate and shake and rattle as you pull them through the water. And the fish uh, sense that vibration and turn and react to the bait and, and bite it. But, yeah, they actually can hear. And so it sounds like also, though, that it, almost their entire body is their ear in a sense. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I hadn't thought of it that way, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got an early caller on the line. Our friend Sue from Beaumont has called in today. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how are y'all? Good. I'd like to ask Karen a question. It's not about any of our fish here in Mississippi, but it's about salmon. I've I've often wondered how how can a salmon through... Okay, they come and breed in freshwater, and then the offspring go back to the sea. But I thought if you were saltwater fish that you could not survive in freshwater. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? How does manage to segue back and forth between salty and fresh and live how do they do that and why do they do that uh, well um i don't know all the biomechanical pathways by which they can do that but um you can actually take i've i've done this you can actually take a freshwater fish like a gar alligator gar and very slowly over 24 hours or so change the salinity and i've actually moved a, one of our gar that we had in the aquarium from freshwater one of our freshwater aquariums into a saltwater aquarium um, it just you just do it very gradually and slowly, um, and they can do it. So there are, like you said, there are some fish that move, live their adult life in saltwater, but reproduce in freshwater. So again, I'm sorry, I don't know all the the pathways, the metabolic pathways, but they can do it as they migrate up the rivers uh, to spawn. Then the the larva will float downriver. Now there's some fish that actually go the opposite direction. There's some fish that live in freshwater but then will migrate into salt water to reproduce, and then the larvae swim back upstream. So uh, eels, American eels are an example of that. Um, American eel adults live in rivers. The lar- They then migrate out to the Sargasso Sea, which is affectionately known as the Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> <laughs> and then reproduce there, and then the larvae will migrate back up rivers and become adults in the rivers and streams. So... Yeah, that's fascinating to me that they can they can do that. Um, another example, um, I used to work at Bass Pro and took care of the aquariums there, and, and they sent me a shipment of fish, and they had this redfish in freshwater, which is kind of, I was like, where am I supposed to put this redfish? It doesn't go in the salt freshwater tank, and it's too big for the saltwater tank. But, uh, yeah, they wanted me to put it in the freshwater tank, and they're still there today living in freshwater. Redfish are typically saltwater fish. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm sorry I can't exactly answer the question, but it is a fascinating phenomenon that fish can go in either direction, freshwater to saltwater. Now, not all fish, but there are some that are specially adapted to be able being able to do that. All right. Thank you. Yeah, Sue, thanks for the call. Uh, let's uh, take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest today, Karen Deeroff, an aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking about... Uh, fish senses, also a little bit about aquariums if you have a question about that. And the phone number with our open phone lines is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Also visiting us from the museum, Karen Deeroff, an aquarium biologist there at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Uh, so we're talking today about fish, some of the senses that fish have. We've spoken a little bit about uh, how fish uh, hear, uh, but also we're going to be talking about their other senses and also taking any questions that you have. Libby's here, so if you have a wildlife-related question, uh, you can give us a call as well. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. So, Libby, I think uh, there were a couple of things uh, coming up the museum that you wanted to mention. Let's see. At the museum and other places, uh, a kind of an early reminder that the Great Delta Bear Affair is happening in Rolling Fork, which okay. is an incredible thing. If nobody's, if you haven't been before, you really should go. October the 28th. All day long, they're going to be celebrating Great Delta Bear Affair, and we, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. And then, let's see, at the museum, October the 13th is National Fossil Day. Uh-huh. I think that's kind of a new, or either we we didn't used to celebrate that, but now <laughs> there's a National Fossil Day, and so they're celebrating it here in Jackson. From 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, there will be special fossil activities going on at the museum, and then there's a special exhibit, Be the Dinosaur, which is uh, great fun and, of course, about fossils and lots of other fossils on display. So if you want to celebrate National Fossil Day, you can do that on October the 13th. That's this Friday. That's right. Yeah. It's tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> after working here 30-plus years, I, I think some of my younger colleagues might consider me a living fossil. So <laughs> maybe I could go over there and get, <laughs> get yeah. in on the fun. Uh, so uh, we, we uh, got an email, and uh, someone had sent in a picture of a frog. I think that she found in her house, and was looking for an identification. Any have you uh, any leads on on what kind of frog is pictured there? Yes, yeah, she says somebody told her it was a leopard frog, and that's, that's what we think it what is we too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, leopard frogs have a really cool call. It almost sounds like somebody laughing. Mm-hmm. Kind of like <laughs> kind of a chuckle. Yeah, we ended up with a black and white picture. She may have sent a color, but that's what it looks like from there. All right. And uh, always, if you're looking, if you see something uh, when you're out and about, maybe walking or uh, just enjoying the great outdoors of Mississippi, you see a creature that you're not aware of. If you can, you know, with our smartphones these days, they've got some great cameras. Always good to try to take a picture of it. Uh, That really helps out when someone's trying to identify something. And, uh, you know, they will always give it their best shot uh, down at the museum. And Libby uh, does a good job of that. But uh, certainly a, a, a picture really, really does help because it would be, It's you know, that's kind of, I guess, human psychology maybe not that but it would be interesting that if if you showed someone a picture of a frog or a snake or a creature and you got five people to describe it you would probably get five different descriptions of what it looked like what the color was and that sort of thing so that's why a picture is always helpful uh, worth a thousand words (laughs) (laughs) yes Mm -hmm. so uh, karen you had mentioned the the lateral line is sort of the hearing uh, organ or the way that fish hear and it's something that runs down the entire body so are fish good at here i mean it would that would seem to me that they would really hear well uh do they have sort of an acute sense of of hearing well you have to remember that that water conducts vibrations and sounds much much better than um air does 
And so sounds are very amplified underwater. But if you've ever dove underwater, it's very hard to, to have any kind of sense of direction from which direction the sounds are coming from. Uh, I don't know if that's true with fish or not, but, um, yeah, I would think that all fish can sense vibrations uh, to some extent. Now, how much they use it, I don't know. But I would imagine, too, that they could possibly discern the vibration that a prey that they might be interested in would make versus... Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the, the techniques that fishermen will use is they'll they'll jerk their bait through the water like it's a fish that's in trouble or in distress, and uh, I've read that sharks can discern the vi- various vibrations of a fish that's healthy versus a fish that's in distress and target the fish that's in distress. And that's why they say that humans splashing on the surface of the water <laughs> sound a lot like a fish in distress. But whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's just what I've heard. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Cause that's so, but I, I, probably good advice. But if, if you see a shark to, trying not to splash around like that, probably would be very difficult. <laughs> oh, it would be hard not to do. We, we get a little excited when don't we splash, see them. Don't yes. splash. <laughs> so we're on uh, Creature Comfort today. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in and join the conversation, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. So uh, let's talk then about sight. Um, obviously, I think all fish have eyes, although there, I guess there might be some maybe uh, deep uh, dwellers uh, that don't. No. All right. Well, all right. Set me straight on that one. Let's talk about <laughs> sight in fish. There, um, you would assume that all fish have eyes, but no, there are actually some fish that don't. Like you said, deep sea fish, there's nothing to see. There's no light, um, except a few fish like angler fish, you know, trick other fish into swimming towards their little lure that has bioluminescence. Um, but there are cave fish that are blind that have been in caves for so long, so many generations that their eyes have atrophied to the point where they really don't have eyes anymore. So, yeah, not all fish have eyes. Um, And again, some fish can probably see much better than others. Um, The direction that the eyes point tell you a little bit about the type of uh, fish it is. So, like, uh, bass will have eyes that uh, point more forward so that they can triangulate. A lot like predator mammals, their eyes point forward. Uh, as opposed to uh, some of your foraging fish, the ones that are herb- herbivorous, their eyes are more on the side of their head so they can see peripherally, so they can look for the predators because they're not really trying to target prey, so they don't have to have that ability to uh, triangulate. Um, and mammals are the same way. Your hoof stock, you know, the eyes are on the side of their head, whereas lions and tigers and bears, oh my, their <laughs> eyes are towards the front. Um so, yeah, but again, vision is probably not as acute in fish as it is in mam- most mammals uh, because water can be can be very, very clear, mm-hmm. but it can also be extremely turbid. So uh, vision becomes a little less important in very turbid water. Uh, does the shape of a fish's eye um, have anything to, to do on how well they see? You know, I don't know. Didn't didn't think to look up about fish, the shapes of their eyes. I have no idea. So I would imagine, let's say, if if you're nearsighted, you can see far away, but not up close. Is that am I right? I've always I always get that mixed up. No, I think nearsighted, you can see near, right? Yeah. 
That's right, because you're nearsighted. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, yeah you're nearsighted. It's, it's yeah. less counterintuitive than you think. <laughs> In my case, I'm I'm both, so <laughs> I have trifocal, so I need help far away, in between, and up close. Uh, which would do you think would be better for a fish to be able to see up close or far away? Or I guess again, does it kind of depend on on the fish and the circumstances? I would, yeah, fish and the circumstance, and and a lot probably to do with the clarity of the water. Up close, if you're in very turbid water, but then you're going to use all your other senses, including smell and hearing and taste even. So so it would matter where they live and and also how they live. If you're a, a really fast-moving animal, it's good for you to be able to see far away. Well, that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, like tunas and things like that. The jack, Anything in the jack family um, in the ocean, they're very, very fast fish as opposed to something like a like a paddlefish or a... You know, it swims just up current, and they don't really have to see a whole lot because they're just filtering water. So they're not really paying a whole lot of attention to what's around them. But I think, as you suggested there, because of the conditions of living underwater, it, it sounds like that really fish need to use their senses in all combination. All of their senses, yeah. Well, and we do too. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely all of their senses in combination. You know, while we're mentioning the eyes, it might be worth talking about flounder eyes oh yes yes thank strange. you That's i don't know really how well one. they see with those eyes but some weird <laughs> things happen with them yeah flounder look like a normal fish when they're first born um until they get about an inch long and then they go through this weird metamorphosis this change and body parts begin to twist and move around especially on the head that mouth kind of twists to one side and one eye will actually migrate and move from one side of their head over the top of their skull and around to the other side and come to rest right beside one the other eye. Hmm. So they actually have two eyes on one side of their head. And depending on what the species is, they either lay on their left side or their right side. The majority of flounders lay on their uh, are right-sided, so the right side is up. And so they have two eyes on the one side of their head. If, but if you took the, and then they swim the rest of their lives on that with that side up. They swim sideways. But if you look at them, they have the dorsal fin is on one side, the, the, the all the the pelvic and the anal fins on the other, and pelvic and girdle on you know each side. It's just their heads twisted a little bit, and their eyes two eyes on one side of their head. Mm. And some of them can move as much as an in, uh, five inches or more as they migrate around their their head. Mm. <laughs> That, that if you've never seen that, that would probably spook you there. If you were snorkeling or somehow underwater swimming around, maybe scuba diving, something along those lines. Um, all right, so let's move on. Uh, you did mention uh, that the the uh, taste is a is important sense for fish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They do taste. Um, if catfish, I think everybody knows that the whiskers on catfish are um, not just for tactile for sensing touch, but they actually have taste buds on their on their whiskers and they'll use those as they explore their environment to find food. I love watching the uh, drum, the saltwater drum that I have in the Mississippi Sound Aquarium. They have little whiskers under their chin, not the same kind of barbels that catfish have, but a whole myriad of them under their chin so that they look like little old men. But they swim (laughs) along the bottom of the aquarium with their whiskers just barely touching the bottom. And as soon as they swim over a piece of food, they'll stop back up and, and grab it. So they're they're literally tasting with their whiskers. Um, and again, fishermen have learned how to trick those senses. Uh, things that are scavengers like the catfish and the drum have very highly uh, have good senses of taste. And fishermen know that. And so they'll make baits that are affectionately known as stink baits. 
and they do stink. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they'll use that as, as a way to exude sense, smell, and then the fish are drawn and attracted to that. And they can come from quite a ways away to drawn to that scent, that smell, uh, to eat the food. Yeah, so the, the idea of smell and taste kind of go together uh, there. Um, as yeah, well, yeah. so and, <clears throat> and bass fishermen. Some people will squirt smells on their on their plastic worms and things like that. And they'll talk about not touching them with your hands too much, uh, because you don't want to put your human scent on the lure, the artificial lure that you're using. And uh, our producer Java mentions that shark uh, do a similar thing with their food, where they rub on their skin there. So possibly a similar kind of thing where they're getting that uh, yeah. tasting through their, their skin almost. Sharks have a very unique organ in their bodies called the, um, oh my goodness, am I going to say it? Jacob, no, that's just snakes. Ampule of Lorenzi, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, that can sense smell and, and actually, no, that's wrong. That's electrical vibration. So that's a whole nother aspect that we hadn't even talked about is electrical uh, impulses and uh I've often thought that the paddlefish that we have in the aquarium have that same ability. It's really unique when you watch them swimming and two of them swim near each other and their bills, they're that long, really weird-looking paddle mm -hmm. that they have on the front, and they cross. Even though they're not touching, the fish will just literally freak out and each go the other direction. And I wondered if they had some sort of an ability to sense electrical um, impulses like a shark can. So that's a whole nother sense that... Uh, some fish have. I don't know if all fish have it, but some do. All right. Need to take another quick break. Uh, we're visiting today with Karen Deeroff, a uh, aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines. We'd love to hear from you this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 Send an email to animals at org. Back with more after this. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Karen Deeroff, who is an aquarium biologist at the Museum of Natural Science. And we've been talking about the senses that fish have, talked about uh, hearing and uh, sight and taste and smell. Um, so if you have a question about the fish or possibly about aquarium, if you have one at your home and uh, need some advice, you can give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. And we always like to hear wildlife uh, experiences that you have. So if you want to call in and share that, we'd be glad to hear from you as well. And let me, before we get back to fish, you, you had some interesting uh, research on, uh, was it mountain lions, I think? Yeah, mountain lions. They go by so many different names, cougar, Florida panther. Uh, some new research was released recently about their social lives, and I thought it was interesting. And you and I were talking about cats and mm -hmm. your cat, and it made me think about because it, it is so much like a house cat, too. They had previously thought that cats were just, the cougar were completely loners, except when they would get together and mate, and then that would be it. They don't, you know, they don't seem to function as a family group. And, and that may be true to a large extent still, but what they've been documenting, thanks to remote cameras, 
at feeding sites, you know, where there's particularly a kill or something. They have uh, documented now several incidences of the lion sharing their food with hmm. another lion. Like if uh, a, a mountain lion or a cougar would kill a deer, then other cougar might show up. And at first, there was all the fighting, snarling, which they've witnessed before previously and thought, well, that's it. Well, they said, after all that show, now we may say, lots of growling and hissing and spitting and maybe even swatting each other, then they seemed to settle down and eat together. (laughs) And when they started watching long term, it seems to be a deal where this cougar might then get another, the the one that, that came up and sort of interloped on the scene and then was finally accepted. Later, when it made a kill, the other one, the same thing <laughs> happened from the reverse. So, But, you know, isn't it just like a cat, not to give up too quick? <laughs> They've got to, they got to, they got to be a cat first. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you've got to be able to prove your worth to step up to the dinner yeah. table there. Oh, you know? all right. But you're going to owe me one. That's you right. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I thought it was interesting. And they said for an animal that... In some ways, they've studied a lot. Of course, so much of the research has just been where are they and where do they live and what's happening to their territories. But uh, we haven't had chances to observe social behavior in the wild. All these great new kinds of cameras mm-hmm. are in, or they're getting more affordable now, and it really makes it possible to do. And how many people? I get pictures all the time from people that have critter cams in their yards and uh although I think what they usually call a critter cam is mounted on mounted on the critter isn't it yeah. so whatever anyway if you've got trail cams uh you can get some incredible stuff from your yard I imagine uh drones are uh, opening up a whole new realm mm-hmm. of research as well yeah although I I think I've seen a video once of um it might have been a drone, either that or some sort of remote camera that the uh, the the big cats found and sort of <laughs> uh, dismantled with a couple of swipes of a paw. So uh, they're very curious. And so, yeah, you're right. But th- that's interesting that uh, drones and, and those sorts of things do allow us to get into places that we've not been in before. And it, it kind of opens up our eyes to that kind of whole world of of the wildlife that uh, kind of is unknown to us. So I think that's why it's, it's so fascinating when we are able to see uh, things like that. Got another call to get to, so we invite uh, Timothy on the line from Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning, y'all. Morning. Go ahead. Uh, great topic, you know. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about the dead zone, you know, and what's being done to mitigate it. Um, you know, I just I feel like we could be doing something like put in bubblers or something like that. Oh, it's the, so much really bigger great. than that. It's it's so much more involved than that. So for those who don't know, the dead zone is an area at the mouth of the Mississippi River where there's very, very little oxygen. And uh, no animals can survive there that, that typically breathe oxygen. So there's no fish there. And it's typically at the very bottom of the, the, the water where there's a the layers of water haven't mixed. And so there's no oxygen at the very bottom. Um, and... I'm going to try and do this without getting too political or too controversial, but it's basically, it's a result of excess nutrients and nutrients cause algae blooms, uh, the microscopic plants, if you will. And then when they die, they soak up all the oxygen, um, and sink to the bottom. So the problem is, is 
it's huge areas of the river and it depends on the season as well and how much rainfall we've had and how much runoff there is from farm fields, from people's homes, um, it, from golf courses, golf courses from businesses and, and industry. The entire, the entire drainage of the Mississippi, exactly. Missouri, Ohio, exactly. Tennessee. And so I think the best course of action is really education, um, trying to educate farmers to not till right up to the edge of the river, trying to educate uh homeowners to not spray pesticides and herbicides during certain times of the year or certain times of the day. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about all this, but education and trying to teach people how to use best practices when doing these kinds of things, that would be the best solution um, because it's not something that's so small enough to, to solve with bubblers. Um, it's also something that does occasionally happen naturally. So, for example, in uh, yes, Mobile Bay, yeah. they have the, the what they call the Jubilee, which is when naturally there's a, an event that causes low oxygen down at the bottom and it causes all these animals to die or flee that area. And they come to um, inshore where people can just scoop them up by the hundreds. And so it's something. I've done that. What is it? Oh, have you? Okay, I've never yeah, been to we, a Jubilee. <laughs> we used to sleep on the pier. In late August, early September, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in it, the summer, when it, when the water was real hot and wouldn't hold much oxygen, right? You know, um, and we'd sleep out on the pier, and you could hear the flounder in the shallows, you know, over the oyster beds, just flapping away, trying to get some water. You know, I've heard it's quite an experience. Water. I've heard it's quite an experience. And that happened, you know, historically, even before modern industry and all that. I mean, the Indians talk about jubilees. So, um, yeah. So I don't know what the answer is. It's a very complicated issue. And if you can figure it out, let us know. All right. <laughs> Timothy, always good to hear from you. And I think that uh, when we talk about our natural environment, that that's something that we always need to keep in mind is how interrelated it is. You know, even here in the Jackson area, you see on on uh, drainage things, uh, signs that say don't pour. Drain this yeah. drains directly to and the And you Gulf, think, right? it's like, oh, well, you know what? But you're right. It's it, it runoff, and then one thing leads to another. So, uh, you know, we've been gifted this beautiful planet, so I think it, it does all of us to be kind of mindful of, of what we're doing and, and the possible consequences that sometimes our actions have. And remember that our drinking water and everybody downstream's drinking water is coming at least partly from the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got another call. This is uh, our friend Kathleen calling in from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning, Kevin. I'm going to tell on myself. I had a story. It got me so mad, and I had to turn around and laugh at myself. I had just bottled up and canned up a bunch of red beans, had them on the counter. I had just cleaned the kitchen the day before to make everything was nice and sparkly. I bent over because I dropped the lid. My cat, Handsome, ran across the room jumped on my back, went to go for the cabinet, hit the pot of red beans, and you wouldn't believe. They went everywhere, the counter, the microwave, the toaster oven, me and my hair. And I had to clean everything up quick because the other cat that happened to be in, they all started sniffing the beans so they wouldn't get an upset stomach. And then I was so mad, I went, oh, it's a cat. There's nothing you can do. Just <laughs> laugh at yourself. And I said, you know, I texted my friend and I told her, I said, I just got hit by a red bean bomb. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, sometimes they just make you so mad and so happy that you have them. But I'm sure something like that's happened to somebody in your audience before. All right. And it probably won't be the last. Thanks, Kathleen. Good story there. Yeah, that's true. You know, you a lot of times when I get mad at my cat, you, you do have to take a step back and say, hey, it's a cat. That's that's doing catly things. So if you, if you don't want it, you you shouldn't get one because uh, they can be uh, the, quite uh, quite irritating at times. But they're they're very lovable too, and, and I would would not trade my cat for anything. Uh, all right, so um, Karen, we've talked about the the all the senses, and you'd mentioned that fishermen have sort of taken advantage of that. So the idea of the wiggling, the scented, uh, the flavored, and and that sort of thing that works. But you got to know which type of trick, as it were, to use with which type of fish. Uh, yeah, we always talk about how uh, we have a few events at the museum that try and teach people a little bit about fishing. One is called Catfishing Kids. That's usually the first Saturday in June. Um, and obviously we, we try and teach the kids a little bit about how to fish, but mostly focus on catfishing because we stock a pond with catfish. Um, and then in early February, we have a different event called So You Think You Can Fish, where we have uh, professional and expert anglers come in and try and teach people all those tricks and tips and techniques. Um, I am not a very good fisherman. I always joke that the fish are on the other side of the boat whenever <laughs> I fish. Um, but yeah, th- there are lots of techniques and you pretty much want to decide what it is you're after before you go fishing. So if you want to catch a bass, you're going to pick baits and lures that are larger, that are specifically for predators. If you want to fish for catfish, you're going to pick smaller, slightly smaller hooks. You're going to pick pretty stinky things. You're going to fish on the bottom. If you're fishing for brim, you're going to pick some pretty small little hooks. You're going to fish with small bait, um, live, maybe live crickets and worms. So you, you kind of have to have a little bit of a plan before you go out. You're not just wetting a hook and hoping something will bite it. You kind of want to know what you're targeting. Now, as for the specific tricks on how to rig your lures and how to jerk it through the water and what speed and what colors, I have no idea. (laughs) I am not a good fisherman. Um, So, yeah, you might want to come to one of those events, specifically if you're more interested in some of the the very elaborate techniques and how to rig things up and how to pull it through the water. That would be more the So You Think You Could Fish event in February. And I think that's always, you know, you've been on promoting that event before, and I always thought <clears throat> how great it is that these, you know, because I'm not a big fisherman, but I always heard they're very secretive, and, you know, they, well, they've got the yeah, technique. No, they fishermen are willing to share. They're not like turkey hunters. Turkey hunters would rather <laughs> kill you than share their secrets. But uh, no, fishermen seem to all be very, very open and, and want to share their expertise and their love of the sport. Um, I've always been blown away by their generosity. Uh, but again, if you are getting into this uh, before you go out and spend a lot of money, again, as you say, have a game plan, know what you want, and know what, what kind of things to get uh, to attract the fish that you're interested in. We need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Karen Deeroff, a aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with uh, Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today is Karen Deeroff. She is an aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So we've been talking about uh, fish this morning and the senses that they have and use. Uh, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the aquarium. I'm sorry, this is another one we talk about, Karen, when you come <laughs> aquarium to Aquarium versus aquaria. Yes. <laughs> the fish tanks. How about that? There you go. Uh, still time for you to work in a phone call if you'd like to. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Libby, we mentioned in the break there is another event coming up uh, at the museum that you might want to mention. Oh, yeah, and it's the uh, now it's gotten to be maybe the biggest event of the year, and that's the Park After Dark Halloween event. And so it is probably worth mentioning that that happens October the 27th from 6 o'clock to 8.30. People are starting to talk about Halloween. Mm-hmm. I've noticed just recently, so I guess it's not too early to say get ready for Park After Dark. All right. It's definitely become one of the staff favorites, um, and since I help plan That's it, right. it's Karen's one of my big, favorites. You're into that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> we love this event because it gives us a chance to dress up and have fun, and, and we always try and include an ed, lots of educational components to it. It's not just scary. It's It's educational, and we have a lot of things that are geared for little ones. So please don't think it's a scary event. It's not. It's it's a little bit educational. It's a lot fun, and it's uh, there's lots of activities for all ages. And of course, there's candy. <laughs> and you know, I will say that, that that I'm glad to see that Halloween has somehow kind of morphing into that because you know back when we were kids, us older folks, uh, you know, w- the idea of wandering through a neighborhood, going up to houses and and asking for candy. I guess it was okay back then, although still a bit strange. But to me, these events where you can go, it's it's organized, it's safe, to me really does uh, beat, uh, again, wandering through a neighborhood mm-hmm. like that. And I know a lot of churches and, and groups like that are starting to do these things where it's uh, it's an event that you can go to, still have the fun, still have the candy, but uh, kind of a little bit, uh, I think, of a safer way mm-hmm. of celebrating Halloween. And nowadays I think people celebrate Halloween for several days. Yes. It's, is, uh, it's not just a one day event anymore so if you have a community or a a a town where you trick-or-treat from house to house still october the 27th is probably not the night that you'll be doing that anyway so you can do it and kids get a lot of mileage out of their costumes i've noticed lately (laughs) and families that they get a more elaborate more expensive costume than we used to have in the the homemade ones are half a dozen times yeah they're still my favorite the homemade ones well i will say i I bought one one year though the costumes uh, halloween costumes are not cheap at all so you're right if you can Mm -hmm. get a little bit more mileage out of it and uh use than just the one night that that certainly is helpful that's for sure oh yeah uh, we got another caller on the line. It's uh, Bob has called in from Alabama this morning. Good morning, Bob. Go ahead, please. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to mention uh, about the lateral lines. Uh, with bass, I'd read an article. We used to go bass fishing. We lived up in Michigan. We used to go bass fishing down in Florida. And I read about the lateral line and how high pressure and low pressure affect fish so bad, especially largemouth bass. And it said that when high pressure is in, you'll actually see bass with their heads stuck in the sand in lily pads, and you'll see their fins sticking out. 
and how hard it is to catch a bass when you have high pressure. And uh, it mentioned that using a, a bait ball of, of worms, and don't wiggle it or anything, just leave it sit out there, and you could catch a bass. We get down to Florida, and sure enough, high pressure, and none of the pro guides would take us out. They said, you go on over to Disney World, you waste your time here. <laughs> So today. So you're talking about barometric we, we pressure. Went yeah, yeah. And went on our own anyways, and sure enough, here's these tails sticking out of the water hmm. in the lily pads in shallow. And we used those worm bait balls, and we caught bass, and we pulled in. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> they called us liars, and we, had, we still had them in the live wells. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, but, we've noticed. Know, amazing. Yeah, we, we, I've noticed differences in the way that the fish position themselves in the aquariums and uh, their feeding responses. Um, when high pressure versus low pressure, atmospheric pressure is what we're talking about. So, yeah, I've noticed that myself in the aquariums, but that's interesting. I, I had never heard that one before for people trying to catch them out in the wild. That's cool. All right. Bob, thanks for the call. Good call there. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. So um, it makes sense, though, the fish is, you know, using all uh, parts of the, their environment to to make sure that they, they survive. One thing that we talked briefly about uh, during the break is the idea of uh, a school of fish and, and whether they sometimes work together. Maybe this fish watches out for that and, and that sort of thing, sort of a, a group think. And I guess we maybe decided that similar to flocks of birds or herds of animals, it, it might almost be instinctive that they work together. Yeah, and uh, I was just kind of reading a little bit about it, and it's not just for um, defense from predators, of course, if you're grouped together in masses and a predator does attack, your chances are better that you won't be the one that gets eaten. <laughs> so it's so it is a defensive mechanism, but it's also uh, could be reproductive. They could be schooling together for reproductive reasons, um, uh, foraging. Sometimes they can uh, group together to make it more effective foraging as well. Um, and something I had remembered learning a long time ago and had forgotten was the difference between a school of fish and a shoal of fish. Okay. A school of fish is all one species, and they're kind of like the birds flocking. They're moving in different directions uh, together in unison. Uh, those ones you see of, of like fish in the ocean where they're changing directions and they have those beautiful patterns that shift and change, that's a school of fish. A shoal of fish can be several different species of fish that are all just happen to be kind of maybe pointed in the same direction, but they're not moving. Maybe they're all lined up on a certain habitat or in a certain spot in relation to a current moving through the water. Um, and then that led me to thinking about the difference between fish, as in plural, fish, one fish, two fish, and fishes. Most people don't think about the difference, but there are there is a difference. One fish, two fish of the same kind. I have, you know... Um, five bass in a tank and so it's fish but if i have uh, five bass 10 brim four catfish it's fishes so if you have different species you use it differently i always thought that was kind of cool we were talking about grammar earlier right. <laughs> yes yes redfish bluefish that uh, that reminded me of that <laughs> uh, so that that is interesting so in the shoal would it be that they're again are they just happen to be kind of in the same area or do you if, think that they're working together maybe no they're bit? not working okay. together it's just kind of more of an environmental thing um either a structure that they want to all be near or a um current but the school of fish they're mm -hmm. working together okay uh we've only got a couple minutes left let's uh, close karen if you could and i hate to put you on the spot too much here but uh, for folks who have a home aquarium what would you say is the number one issue and maybe some Overfeeding. ways to... okay <laughs> yes <laughs> that one was easy overfeeding 
Um, and then fish are cold-blooded animals. Their, their temperature is whatever their environment is. Um, we think of all animals as being like mammals and having to eat multiple times a day and constantly. That's not true. Um, and so overfeeding is the biggest culprit. As a general rule of thumb, you want to feed only as much food as your fish will eat in three to five minutes. If you come back 10 minutes later and there's still food, flake food or whatever, floating around in the aquarium, you have fed too much. Um, the other big issue is what they call new tank syndrome. Uh, very simply, there's a whole host of bacteria that are good bacteria that help break down the fish waste. It takes a while when you're starting a new aquarium for all that bacteria to grow to big enough numbers where, where it will take care of that problem for you. And so what happens usually at about the three to four week mark is there's not enough bacteria to break down the fish waste and the fish waste has built up enough that it's toxic to the fish. And so most people will throw fish in a bowl and get through the first week or two and think, yay, I've done it. I've got an aquarium. Well, it's that four week mark when then things go horribly bad. So you have to do lots of water changes. Really limit how much food you feed and do lots of water changes when you get to that three to four week mark so that you're removing the toxic fish waste and giving that good bacteria enough time to grow and get in enough numbers where it will do that work for you. And again, uh, would do a little research if you're putting different types of fishes yes. in the same tank. <laughs> make sure that they'll they'll be happy together. Most pet stores will help you with that. All right. Great show. Thanks for coming in, Karen. Uh, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Uh, funding is provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's land, water, and wildlife. And from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. So for Libby Hartfield and our guest Karen Deeroff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.